Amen. If you have a copy of, the, of God's Word, I invite you to take that out this morning and remain standing as we read from Psalm 125. Psalm 125. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 Psalms in the Psalter of which we know very little about, but they all carry this superscription, the songs or Psalms of Ascent. These could well have been sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem as they went up Mount Zion and ascended, if you will, to Jerusalem. It could well be that these 15 psalms were the ones that they sung as they ascended and went up. We don't really know. Calvin uh, puts forth a, a different option besides that one, uh, but I think probably that one is the most likely uh, idea behind uh, what uh, these Psalms of Ascent were all about. Nonetheless, I want you to remain standing as we read from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. Please be seated this morning. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Our great God and King, we come to you this morning grateful for your word, grateful, Father, that despite our sin, your word remains true, that despite our sin, you remain faithful and true. For, Father, you love us and you are for us. And if you were to mark out our iniquity, there is none here this morning who could stand. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And if your blessing, my preaching this morning, was dependent upon my sinlessness, Father, there would be no blessing. Even my best day falls short and does not earn or merit your blessing. And so, Father, we pray that despite my sin, that despite our sins, you would draw near to us by your Holy Spirit, and that you would remind us that you really are for us forevermore. Bless and keep us, Father, we pray, for it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. If you've ever been to the beach on a particularly rough, windy day, perhaps the red flags were out and the surf is more violent, more aggressive than maybe it is on a normal 
day at the beach. If you've ever been at the beach at a time like that and you've stood in the surf, maybe not quite ready for the first wave that came against you and it knocked you to the ground, yet only to stand up. You stand up and you wipe the, the water from your eyes and before you can even finish doing that, you're hit with yet another and knocked to the ground again and again and again. The violence of those waves is something we're sometimes not ready to handle. I think that the Christian life is often like that. Wave after wave of hardship and difficulty and sorrow and grief and pain can almost overcome us. One wave can knock us to the ground and yet another one follows in its tracks. They say, at least they have said in the ministry, you become very familiar with all of the directors of the funeral homes in the area as just a, a part of the job responsibilities. Well, they say that deaths come in threes. I don't know if that's true. It is certainly interesting that on a number of occasions when we experienced deaths in the congregation where I pastored, they did seem to come in some form of threes. We had a member of our congregation who experienced unspeakable tragedy. Death came to their family. And death came in threes. They lost their son, their oldest son, and within a short time lost their second son and his wife. How do you go on? in the midst of such sorrow, before you can even get your breath back, the next wave hits you and knocks you to the ground. I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you might be there this morning. Sorrows unspeakable. Maybe it's been death in your family. Maybe it's been just sadness, discouragement. Maybe it's been loss after loss. Maybe it's been persecution and affliction as those you look out in the world. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe it's at the school where you are. But it seems as though evildoers are flourishing. They are prospering, and yet all the while, God seems to be turning his back upon you. Opposition. Persecution. Your eyes have been filled with tears. Your mind has asked one overarching question. Why? Why, God? Why would you allow this? Why would you treat me this way? I am your son. I am your daughter. You are my father. Where are you? I wonder if you've ever been there. When the darkness seems to be your closest friend. Well, if you have, I want you to take courage and take encouragement because Psalm 125 will speak to you this morning. And if you haven't been there, let me encourage you or let me prepare you because you will. If you live any time at all on this earth, you will experience hardship. And difficulty. 
and sorrows and death. So wherever we are and whoever we are, Psalm 125 has encouragement for us. And what I want to do this morning is in the time that we have together, is I want to walk through Psalm 125 and look at three overarching ideas that the psalmist lays out for us in this psalm of a sense. The first thing I want you to see is a promise that we can cling to. A promise that even in times of trouble, you and I can cling to. Look with me at verse 3. It may seem like a very unusual place to start if you know the sound of music and you know that the best place to start or a very good place to start is where? At the beginning, right? Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. We're not going to start at the beginning, and it may seem a little unusual to start here in verse 3 as opposed to starting in verse 1. But I think when we finish looking at this psalm, you'll see that the very heart and center of Psalm 125 is not verse 1, but it's verse 3. There's a promise given in verse 3. And verse 3, therefore, is the key, in my opinion, to this psalm. Verses 1 and 2 are based on the promise of verse 3. And verses 4 and 5 also flow from the promise of verse 3. The psalmist gives us a a promise that we can cling to in verse 3. Look with me in verse 3 a little more closely. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. This is a promise that the psalmist is giving to us. He is saying that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest. The scepter of wickedness. What does the scepter of wickedness refer to? Well, if you know anything at all about monarchs or or kings and queens, you'll know that a scepter goes along with a king or a queen. A scepter is an emblem of reign or rule. The individual, the one who holds the scepter, is the one who reigns. And so here, when the psalmist talks about the scepter of wickedness, that's at least the way... The ESV translates that. It could also be translated the scepter of the wicked because the definite article, the, occurs in the Hebrew. So literally you could translate this, for the scepter of the wicked shall not rest. What the psalmist is telling us is there is a promise here for the righteous. There's a promise here for those who belong to the Lord. And by the way, in case you missed it, did you notice the two groups of people that the psalmist is referring to here in this psalm? There's only two groups of people here the psalmist is speaking to. There's only two groups of people the psalmist is speaking about. Look with me in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord... Verse 2, they are His people. They're God's people. Verse 3, they are also therefore righteous. Verse 4, they are those who do good. Those who are good, excuse me. And those who are upright in their hearts. And that's contrasted with the other group of people, those who are wicked. The the wicked in verse 3. Or in verse 5, those who turn aside to their crooked ways and evildoers in verse 5 as well. 
these two groups of people that the psalmist is comparing and contrasting. And if you look at, that, look at it in that sense, then we know that those who are righteous are not those who are perfect. These are not those that we would put on a continuum of righteousness on one side and unrighteousness on the other. And we would find all of these that the psalmist is talking about, that this promise of verse 3 applies to, are over here on this side of the continuum. No, what so often is the case on this continuum is the Apostle Paul and every one of God's people are over here on the unrighteous side of that continuum. For Paul said about himself that he is the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. And so when the psalmist talks about the righteous, he's talking about those who are trusting in the Lord and therefore right in his eyes. Not because of their own righteousness but because of an alien righteousness, the righteousness as we know, looking at this passage through New Testament eyes, is the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the promise for those who are righteous in Christ is that the scepter, the reign, the rule of wickedness or of wicked people shall not rest upon the land allotted to the righteous. You see what the promise is. It's a promise that we ought to be able to cling to. It's a promise that we ought to hold fast to in times of trouble. And that is that God is promising to limit and to govern all hardship that comes into our lives, all manifestations of wickedness, all manifestations of the reign of wickedness, the sovereignty of wickedness. When wickedness or when wicked people prevail, when they rule, when they are sovereign, then affliction and opposition and persecution is our lot in life. And so God is promising here that for all of his people, this scepter of wickedness shall not remain. That word rest could be translated in many different ways. Rest is a fine translation. It could also be translated remain or stay or wait. The whole point here, I think the psalmist is saying, is not that the sovereignty of wickedness will never come. That's never a promise in the Bible. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say the exact opposite. That if you are living a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You will face opposition. You will face trials and tribulations, losses and crosses. The promise is not that the scepter of wickedness will not come upon the righteous. The promise is that it will not remain. Now, my brothers and sisters, I've lived long enough to know that there are times in the Christian life where it feels like the scepter of wickedness remains. But the promise of God's word, all of the promises of God's word are yes and amen in Christ. 
and we hold fast to those promises, even when we cannot see what God is doing. The promises of God, all of which are yes in Christ, the promises of God are the light at the end of the tunnel in the midst of the darkness. When we cannot see, we don't know the way forward, we can see that light, that light shining even in the darkness. And the promise here is the promise that is very much like the one given to us in Romans 8.28, that God is promising to work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Here, it's put a little differently, but it's, but it's basically expressing the same thing. That the sovereignty, the reign and the rule of wickedness in our lives will not be the case forevermore. You see, the psalmist continues. And he tells us the reason why God is promising to limit and to govern all opposition and all affliction and all hardship and grief and pain and sorrow that comes into our lives as a result of wicked people or as a result of just wickedness coming into the world. He says if he didn't govern, if he allowed the scepter of wickedness to remain, then the righteous would stretch out their hands to do wrong. You see, God is promising to so limit and govern the hardships, the manifestations of wickedness in our lives. Those of us who trust in the Lord, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is promising to so govern and limit those things to hold us fast. Because if He didn't do so, if He gave us more than we could handle, we would leave the faith. We would put forth our hands to do wrong. We would abandon the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is promising that what comes into our lives is from Him and through Him for our good and for His glory. It is said that a good gardener doesn't always prune. But a good gardener does prune. He prunes at the appropriate times, and the pruning is always unto growth. And that's exactly, I think, what the picture we're meant to see here of God, is that when the trials, if you will, the hardships that come into our life, the pruning that is happening in our lives, God is promising to be a good gardener, to never Never be always pruning, but to limit and to govern the pruning that does happen. And that, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials and afflictions, losses and crosses, that is a promise that we can cling to. That our God will limit. That everything that comes to us passes by Him first. And only what comes to us 
comes to us by his sovereign permission or decree. That's a promise that is worth clinging to. But the second thing I want us to see this morning is not only a promise that we can hold fast to, I want us to see a a prayer that we can pray. Look with me at verses 4 and 5, because after laying out this great and glorious promise of verse 3, what does the psalmist do? He immediately turns to the Lord in prayer. He says, do good, O Lord. There's a direct address here. He's addressing the Lord in prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts, immediately after laying out the promises of God in the midst of hardship, the manifestations of wickedness in our lives, the psalmist turns to prayer. And that's obviously always a good reminder that whatever we're going through, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You see, no matter how many waves are coming over you, the response that the Christian makes is to go to God in prayer, not to run from God, but to go to Him with our trials, with our tears, with the hardship and the pain and the heartache. And that's exactly what the psalmist shows us here. But more than that, I want you to see not just that the psalmist prays. I want you to see what the psalmist is praying. It's absolutely fascinating what the psalmist is doing here. After laying out this great and glorious promise, which basically can be digested down to this one thing, that the psalmist is saying that God will be good to us, ultimately. He may allow hardship and bad things in our lives. They all pass by His sovereign hand, His sovereign will first. Romans 8.28 The fact that they come to us shows us that God is going to use them for our good. So in effect, what what the psalmist is saying in this promise is that God is promising ultimately to be for our good. And then look what he prays. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. To those who are good, if you will, in Christ. To those who are upright in their hearts, who trust in the Lord, who are right in your eyes. Do good, O Lord, You see, he's just said that the promise of God is that God will ultimately be for our good. And yet now he turns right around and he says, Lord, be good. Do you see what he's doing? The psalmist is praying the promises of God back to God. God has promised that he will be good for us ultimately. That he will always, he will take everything that comes into our lives. And he will so limit and govern that so that we hold fast or better He's holding us fast through all of those hardships. And now he turns around and he prays. In light of that promise, Lord, 
in light of your promise to be good to me ultimately, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the sorrow, your promise is these things will not reign forever. Because you're at work limiting them. You're at work using them. You're at work governing them for my good. And so in light of that promise to be for my good, he now turns and prays, do good. How beautiful it is. The psalmist prays the promises of God back to God. And isn't that something that you and I would do well to follow? In the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the pain, we pray Romans 8.28. We pray Psalm 125.3. Oh Lord, govern this. Oh Lord, limit this affliction. Oh Lord, use this for my good. Do not allow these tears to fall to the ground wasted. Use the hardship. Make it efficacious. Make it effective to accomplish all that you intend to accomplish within me, your child. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. Lord, you have promised. Now do it. And what an assurance we have from the Apostle John himself that if we ask for anything What does John say? If we ask for anything according to his will, we know we have what we've asked of him. What is it to pray the promises other than praying according to his will? He's already promised. It is his will. We know it's his will because he's made it, he's he's declared it to be. He is saying here, the scepter of wickedness will not remain. It will not stay upon the righteous, upon the land of the righteous. And so we have every confidence to know that when we pray, Lord, govern, Lord, limit, Lord, use this for good, we have every Reason to believe that he will in fact do it because he said he will do it. So the psalmist gives us a promise that we can cling to. And he gives us a prayer that we can pray in the midst of difficulty and hardship. But the third thing I want you to see is there's a persuasion that we can rejoice in. A persuasion that we can rejoice in. The reason I started with verse 3 is because of one word. It's not in all English translations, and if it's not, get a different English translation. (laughs) Um, It is in the ESV. It's in the Hebrew. It's the first word that I read in verse 3. For. That word, because, tells us That the promise of verse 3 is the basis for the statement of fact in verses 1 and 2. Notice the tense of verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest. 
Notice the tenses of the verbs in verse 1. They're not future. They're present. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. He doesn't say here those who trust in the Lord will be like Mount Zion. That is true. We know that's true. We know that's true because of verse 3. But that's not what he says. He says we are that now. We're like Mount Zion now. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord will surround his people. No. So the Lord surrounds his people now, from this time forth and forevermore. You see, what verses 1 and 2 are giving us are statements of fact. They're realities, if you will. Realities that are grounded upon the promise of verse 3. If verse 3 is right, if verse 3 is true, that God is going to limit and He's going to govern all of the affliction and the hardship that comes into our lives, then we know we are safe and secure in His everlasting arms. We are, as the psalmist says, like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, Now, I guess it is conceivable, given our modern technology, to move a mountain. We can take the rock down. We can move the mountain. We can't really put it back together again really easily. But we can, in a sense, move a mountain. The point is not for us to think through some of those kinds of technicalities that are associated with a more modern age. But without backhoes or uh, wrecking balls or whatever else we might use today that were not in existence back when Psalm 125 was written. The point is not for us to think how this might not be true, but for us to realize there's a general truth here. Mountains cannot be moved. Even in our own day, mountains cannot be moved real easily. And in that day, it was impossible. Mountains... Are permanent. It's one of the things I think we love about mountains, isn't it? The beauty, the grandeur, the majesty, the permanence. It's awe-inspiring. And the psalmist is saying, just like a mountain cannot be moved, it cannot be shaken, it cannot be taken down, so are all those who trust in the Lord. We cannot be moved. We cannot be shaken. But we abide forever. Did you notice the permanence the psalmist is trying to inculcate here in verses 1 and 2? He mentions it twice. That those who trust in the Lord abide forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. How long? Just for five minutes. Right? Just to the end of the sermon, just to the end of the worship service, when we leave here, that no longer applies, right? No. From this time forth and forevermore. You see, there's permanence for God's people. Permanence, not based on you, not based on me, not based on our record, but based on Jesus Christ. And the promise that is yes and amen in Christ. That the scepter of wickedness will not 
remain over God's people. And because of that, we know that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. We cannot be moved. Notice what he says in verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem. How many of you, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to Jerusalem, to Israel? A few of you? I don't know what it looks like. I've not been there myself, but I do know that uh, at least back in the time, back in Jesus' day even, if you were to go to Jerusalem on the top of Mount Zion, you would go up Mount Zion. Mount Zion was, uh, Jerusalem was on top of a mountain, if you will. Maybe not a mountain by, um, by our uh, Colorado, Utah, Western uh, experience, but a mountain nonetheless. And that mountain was surrounded by other mountains. So much so, and all of those mountains that surrounded Jerusalem were higher than Mount Zion. So that if you were to look at Jerusalem on top of Mount Zion from a 30,000 foot view or even a 10,000 foot view, you would look like a pot or a bowl. And that's exactly what the prophet Ezekiel says about Jerusalem in Exodus chapter, excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter 11. I won't look at that this morning. But go back and look at Ezekiel chapter 11 because he refers to Mount Zion. He refers to Jerusalem as a bowl or a pot or a cauldron because the mountains that surround Mount Zion, the mountains that surround Jerusalem are higher and Mount Zion, Jerusalem is lower so it looks something like a bowl. And that's exactly the idea the psalmist is picking up on here. As these mountains surround Jerusalem, giving it protection, shielding it from all foes, So, the Lord surrounds His people. You see, the promise of verse 3 to govern and to limit all that comes into our life is a promise of protection. And just as the mountains surround Jerusalem and give protection from all enemies that would come against Jerusalem, So the Lord is the protection of his people. Nothing comes against you without him saying yes. And that ought to give us tremendous comfort. There are times in the Christian life where all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. There are times in the Christian life where tears seem to be more plentiful, more bountiful than laughs. It's at those times that we need to remember the promise and cling to the promise of verse 3. That our scepter of wickedness will not remain. And therefore, we are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. We're protected and defended from this time forth and forevermore. Is it any wonder 
Is it any wonder how many of you in reading this psalm wondered about why the psalmist would end with the benediction, peace be upon Israel? It seems a little out of place to go from this prayer. Verse 5, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. It almost seems out of place. But given the glory of verse 3 and the promise that is held out to God's people there and the confident reality that we cannot be moved not by trials, not by opposition, not by persecution, not by sorrow and sadness, not even by death, and sure as anything, not by the accuser himself. You see, the last day, Satan will do what he's done in all of our lives every day up to then, and that is accuse and attack. But the glorious reality of the Christian life is that grace always has the final word. Satan will never have the final word. Your sin will never have the final word. But grace, Jesus, for you, will always be the final word for the Christian. That's why the psalmist can end with this glorious benediction. Peace be upon Israel. This peace is because of Christ. It's grounded in Christ. It's because he was forsaken that you and I will never be. It's because he knew no peace on the cross that you and I have the right to lasting peace forevermore. Peace be upon Israel is our mantra. It is our life for this time. And forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your word. We're grateful for all of the promises contained in it. We're grateful, Father, that they are all, all of them are yes and amen in Christ. We thank you, Father, that in the midst of hardship and affliction and difficulty and trials and tribulations and losses and crosses and sorrows unnumbered, we thank you, Father, that in the midst of all of these things, you have promised to so limit and so govern all of these hardships and all of these afflictions and difficulties so that we are defended And we are protected. And we have peace forevermore. Oh, Father, I pray in the midst of the hardships of the Christian life, I pray that you'd remind us. When we are weak, Father, I pray that you'd remind us that you are strong. When we cannot hold fast to you, Father, I pray that you'd remind us that you are holding us fast. 
And when we feel forsaken, Father, I pray that you'd remind us that we will never be forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken in our place and in our stead. So that we might know only peace from this time forth and forevermore. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.